My name is Jonathan Havercroft, and this is the Just Riot Theory Podcast. Since the ancient era, philosophers have debated when war might be justified. This philosophical tradition is called just war theory. These theorists have developed a sophisticated set of criteria for assessing the validity of waging war and what specific actions within a war are permissible. While there is significant debate from the ancients down to today over the scope of these criteria, there is general agreement on a few key points. The first is that defensive wars, that is wars that states fight to resist the aggression by other states, are justified. The second is that the use of violence within war is permissible if it is proportionate and if it is intended for legitimate targets, such as armed combatants. In addition to warfare, philosophers have also developed arguments to justify other acts of violence, such as armed revolution, terrorism, and the death penalty. I have taught many of these arguments in my classes over the years, and have published extensively on the political philosophy of violence. Yet despite all this work on the moral justifications for violence, there is comparatively little work that considers when, if at all, riots might be justified. In 2015, I was preparing my notes for a lecture on just war theory while also reviewing the morning's news. The previous night, there had been a riot in Baltimore in the U.S. in response to the police murder of Freddie Gray. Gray had been arrested on a minor weapons charge and placed in the back of a police van. It has been alleged in numerous media reports that the Baltimore police officers engaged in a practice called a rough ride in which they did not secure Gray in the van and proceeded to drive recklessly through the city, knowing that this would intimidate and injure Gray. As a result of the raid, Gray suffered fatal injuries to his spine. He went into a coma and died a week later on the 19th of April. From April 18th to 24th, there were daily protests in the city demanding police accountability for Gray's injuries and subsequent death but both the police and the governor were evasive in their responses. On April 25th, a protest escalated to violence, with riots occurring throughout the city over the next three nights. All told, these riots resulted in 113 injuries and nearly 500 arrests. There was looting and arson, with the most high-profile incident being the destruction of a pharmacy. After the riots, all six police officers involved in Gray's death were charged. One case ended in a mistrial, two other officers were subsequently acquitted, and the prosecutors eventually dropped the charges against the other officers. In recent years, from Tottenham to Ferguson to Baltimore to Minneapolis, we have seen this pattern repeated. The police kill a black man, peaceful protests are often ignored, and then something triggers a riot. In the just war tradition, the use of violence is permitted if it resists violence from an aggressor. As I read the news from Baltimore that spring morning in 2015, I wondered why there is no equivalent philosophy for justifying rioting. The rioters in all these places had legitimate grievances. Not only were they outraged at the senseless murder of one of their fellow citizens, they were fed up with years of police brutality and the complete non-response by the state to their demands. If violence is permitted when resisting an invading army, then why do so many consider it impermissible in opposition to violent repression by the state? I've spent the last six years exploring this question, 
My purpose in this podcast series is to interview some of the scholars whose work on this topic has shaped my own thinking. My first guest had a similar intuition to me. In 2011, there was a riot in Tottenham, London, in response to the death of Mark Duggan. As we will hear in our discussion, this event prompted Avia Pasternak to reassess rioting from a moral perspective. Dr. Pasternak argues that in some circumstances, rioting is justified. She draws upon a contemporary strand of just war theory to develop her argument. Central to her work is the philosophical idea of defensive harm. This principle says that it is permissible to inflict harm on someone in order to prevent that person from attacking someone else. According to this philosophy, violence is permissible when we use it defensively to prevent someone from harming other people. Avia Pasternak's article, Political Rioting, A Moral Reassessment, argues that riots may be permissible if they are acts of defensive harm. Dr. Pasternak is an associate professor in political theory at University College London. Her research focuses on the appropriate response of citizens to state injustices. She is particularly interested in the question of whether oppressed citizens may resort to violent protests against their state, and how should unjust states respond to citizens who resort to such violence. I asked her to join us today to discuss her work on the political philosophy of rioting. So Avia, welcome. We're here today to talk about your work on rioting. And I just want to begin by asking you, how did you become interested in riots? Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be here. So I started working on this question or became interested in this question around 2011. I was living in London then. And if you remember, this was the year, the summer where there were violent protests in London and around the UK, which were instigated by an incident of, uh, of police violence. And I was living in North London in an area which was targeted by um, by these protests. So shops were smashed and people were feeling unsafe in the evening. And I had some thoughts about that. I was actually started by being very opposed to the very idea, to this feeling of, of being feeling unsafe and to this feeling of civic unrest. And then I had a conversation about this with a colleague of mine, Emily McTernan at UCL, and she actually had a different view. And we started arguing about it. And I realized that there's a really interesting question here. Um, and I started questioning my own negative knee-jerk reaction to those incidents. And I realized that there's more to think here. So I started reading about violence, about the justification of violence. And I realized that there's, there are important questions that we need to ask and that haven't been asked yet in the literature. So your work's looking at writing from a moral perspective, and I'd say the common perception, I think both academically, but also just asking the average person, is that riots are always unjustified. It's an immoral thing to do. So why do you think that view is wrong? Um, okay, that's, that's, that's a good question. So I think we, in order to answer this question, we, we first need to unpack the concept of riots. Okay, so we, we need to think, what do we mean by riots? And of course, um, at a very, very general level, riot is a form of public disorder where people go to the streets uh, and usually they're unorganized and they uh, start engaging in, in acts of collective violence. And they can be violence against property and it can also be violence against person. 
Now, the causes of the types of rights we have, or the causes of rights we have, can, can be very different. So, some, sometimes people engage in this kind of collective disorder, public disorder, because they are uh, targeting a certain ethnic groups. Uh, right, so we had those cases in the U.S. where people, for example, targeted African Americans and neighborhood and uh, destroyed them, and you can call that a form of a right. Um, sometimes uh, people do that because they just get very kind of excited and agitated. So you know, there's there's examples of riots that following a football game, uh, football matches in the U.K. But sometimes, and these are the type of protests that I'm focusing on. The people who go to the streets and indeed engage in violence are doing this because they think that they have been treated unjustly by the state, and they feel that they're so that the type of injustice that they face uh, justifies uh, the resort to to violence. And I think that the knee-jerk reaction that we have in a public discourse against the resort to political violence, there's something worrying about it when it comes from the direction of a privileged group that criticizes the actions of an oppressed group. So if we have, for example, the case of a, of a privileged institutions like the, the UK uh, government at the time of the, of the London riots and the UK leading parties, uh, and they are criticizing the actions of people who, if you look at the reports, the commission reports that was done about the riots, you, there's very much evidence to show that the people who participated in them were people that were marginalized in UK society on a racial basis and an economic basis. So we have here a case where there's a group that suffers from um, what we might call social oppression. So I think we should be wary as a privileged group from criticizing, from having a knee-jerk a knee-jerk reaction against the resort of that group to violence without first investigating, perhaps there was some justification to their action, especially when such groups often themselves face violence from the hands of the state. So I'm not trying to suggest that all types of rights are justified, but I'm suggesting that particularly in those cases, we should take a step back and use more careful analytical tools and philosophical tools to assess the situation. So there's a couple of traditions in political theory that that look at protest and look at violence. So the first one I want to talk about is the civil disobedience tradition. So there's been since the 70s in political theory, a fairly kind of large tradition of thinking about civil disobedience. In your work, you don't really draw on that that much. You kind of acknowledge it, but you don't think it's that kind of appropriate frame for that. So, so why do you think civil disobedience isn't a a good fit for thinking about riots? That's a good question. And I have uh, been actually influenced by some of the thought, some of the literature that was done, some of the research that was done in the civil disobedience tradition. What I'm more reluctant, the, the reason why I, I, I think that some of that literature is, is less relevant for the question we're interested in here, is that at least traditionally, civil disobedience literature has been focused on a particular type of protest. That protest is indeed illegal, that's what makes it a disobedience. However, it has a characteristic of being nonviolent, almost by definition, for a lot of activists and for a lot of philosophers who think about civil disobedience. And it is typically quite organized, staged events. So think, folks, about the kind of, you know, exemplar cases of civil disobedience, Rosa Parks uh, refusing to give up her seat in the bus, or the cases of pacifists, uh, activists 
breaking into uh, nuclear weapons bases in the U.S., or the more recently, the cases of Extinction Rebellion. These are very carefully planned and very carefully staged events, all of them. And behind them, there's quite an organized group that has taken you know, very measured and very conscious decisions about how to act in, in that context. For that reason, we can analyze civil disobedience, but we uh, and, and there's been a lot of discussions around that, but it seems that the conclusions that that philosophical tradition draws are not necessarily applicable to the case of what I refer to as political rights because they don't share these characteristics, right? So political rights, by definition, are not committed to nonviolence, and they are, by my definitions, they are unstructured unorganized events that are not the result of a policy decision of some organized um, political party or protest movement and so on and so forth. Often they are actually give rise to uh, the creation of, of, uh, of protest movements and a more organized protest movement, but they are not um, the outcome of such. So I'm not sure that the conclusion that civil disobedience literature has can actually help us to analyze this type of protest. So instead, your work draws on just war theory, right, which is a tradition, a long tradition in kind of philosophy that tries to work out justifications for when going to war might be acceptable or permissible. So can you tell us how you came to draw on these ideas and what is it about just war theory that you think provides better analytical tools for thinking about violent protests? Yeah, so once I realized that um, civil disobedience, at least in the kind of the more classic literature on civil disobedience, um, is not where we can find the kind of the theoretical tools to think about a violent protest, that's not where we need to go to. I started to think, well, where can we go to? And my my thought was to focus on the on the violence elements of the protest, which I think is what the key concern that we have with political rights is the fact that they inflict uh, harm on others through acts of violence. And that led me to think, okay, so what do we, what what should we think, what is the frameworks that we're using to analyze whether the resort to violence is permissible or not permissible, justified or not justified? So we have, if you like, two major uh, bodies of literature here, and uh, they're they're both kind of connected, of course, in in, in important ways. One is the ethics of self-defense, where we are perhaps more talking about individuals engaging in in self-defense against an attacker. An offshoot of that literature is the literature on on just war, which which engages in um, the justification of collective violence, if you like, so typically on behalf of uh, states engaging in wars with each other, but of course, in recent years, as the world become more complex, it's not just states, it can also be other subgroups within the state that engage in collective violence. So to my mind, the general, of course, important differences between um, states engaging in war and militaries uh, fighting each other and, and political rioters um, engaging in, in acts of violence against the state, against their own state. However, there are also important similarities. First, the use of violence. Secondly, the use of collective violence. So it's a group that is acting in some ways together. So to my mind, the same theoretical tools or the same the same um, general framework that the ethics of self-defense and just war theory offers us, we can apply and should apply to the case of uh, violent protests. 
So in your work, you apply three key conditions from the just war theory to study riots. So let's walk through each one in turn. So the ones you kind of spell out what you call the necessity condition, the effectiveness condition, and the proportionality condition. So let's just start with the first one. So what is what do you mean by the necessity condition? And how do you apply it to riots? What are its implications for riots? So um, the necessity condition at the, at the very, very general level requires that if an agent chooses to engage in violence and impose harm on others, it, it needs to be the case that it's really their last resort. There was no other, there was no alternative route to, um, to resolve the problem that that agent could have taken and does, that does not involve um, the infliction of violence. So let me just give you a very, very a quick example taken from the ethics, ethics of self-defense. Let's imagine kind of like a Wild West scenario where you are facing an attacker, that unjustified attacker who without any good reason threatens to shoot you and you know they can kill you. You yourself happen to have a gun and you, can, uh, you know that you are a very good aimer, so you can either uh, shoot your attacker, uh, say, in the head and kill him, or you can shoot him in the hand and actually just, um, you know, get him to drop his gun and, and that way he would not die. So if you are absolutely certain that you can achieve that goal, then, uh, you know, common sense tells us that the right thing to do is to shoot in the hand rather than shoot in, in the head because this would be, uh, you have here an alternative that inflicts less harm. So shooting in the, in the head would not meet the necessity condition. That's the kind of the general framework. There are some more complications once we dive into it, and perhaps we'll touch upon them later. But I think for the, for the start, for that stage of the conversation, we can leave it at that. And so how, how do you apply this to riots? So how, does, how do you get from, you know, whether or not it inflicts harm to, to the, so the case we, of a riot? Um, okay, so then if we want to take that condition and apply it to the case of political protest, we need to ask ourselves, do the protesters that decided to engage in violence, were there actually other options available to them, nonviolent options? Um, if there were nonviolent options that were available to them, then we might say, well, then why did you go violent? Right? Why didn't you actually engage in peaceful protest? Why didn't you petition your government? Why didn't you vote for the right political party? Why didn't you engage in campaigns of civil disobedience? If we think that those options were available to them, then they would not meet the necessity test. If, however, we have good reasons to think that these options were not truly available to them or have been tried and failed already, so they have good reasons to think that if they try these options, they would not um, resolve the problem, then, um, they, uh, then the resort to violence could be justified. Hmm. So what about your second condition, the effectiveness condition? What, what is that? What do you mean by that term? So the effectiveness condition requires that when we engage in violence, and I mean here, when we engage in, in defensive violence, in violence of, as a form of self-defense, it needs to be the case that, that we have good reasons to think that our resort to violence has a good, good enough chance of actually succeeding. By succeeding or by being effective, I mean that they have a good enough chance of actually averting the attack. So again, in the example where uh, you face an attacker, if you can harm that person in some way, but you know that given your limited capacities, the harm that you are inflicting will be will have no chance of actually um, changing the outcome, then 
many people think that actually your self-defensive acts are, are not justified. If we apply to the case of political protest or, or violent protests, the implication is that the protesters need to be uh, sufficiently assured that if they resort to violent acts, then their goals, um, there's, there's sufficient likely, likelihood that their goals uh, will be met. So, for example, that the state will change its unjust policies, that there will be that the concerns will be heard in the public spheres, and so on and so forth. That's good. So, the third third condition you have is what's called the proportionality condition. So, can you explain what that is as well, and and then how you apply it to riots too? Absolutely. So the proportionality condition is probably the one that is the most uh, complex and the one that has received the most attention in recent debates in political theory and in philosophy. So just to kind of give the, the general idea here is that when we inflict harm on others um, in self-defense, it must be the case that the harm that we inflict has the defensive harm we inflict has an appropriate fit with the harm that we are seeking to prevent. So just again, to tease out the intuition here, what does this mean? So again, in a, in a simple case of one-on-one self-defense, suppose, for example, that you are facing again an attacker that threatens to kill you. It seems that there's an, and suppose that the only way that you can prevent the attack is by um, sh- shooting to kill the attacker, and you're also fairly certain that that, that uh, act will actually um, be effective in, in averting the threat. It seems that our intuition is that there's an appropriate fit between the harm that you will inflict on your attacker and the harm you seek to avert, right? So they seek to kill you, and it seems that there's an appropriate fit between that and you killing them. But imagine now a different scenario. Imagine that you are facing a, a different attacker, an attacker that all they, they seek to do is to snatch your glasses off you. Uh, and suppose that the only way to prevent that person from snatching your glasses off you is, uh, to, again, to shoot them in the head. And you're certain that uh, if you will shoot them in the head, that kind of attack on your property will be prevented. So both necessity and success are met. I think all of us would agree that shooting a person in the head because the harm you seek to avert is to kind of get back your glasses or to prevent your glasses being snatched from you is not proportionate. So there is no appropriate fit between the defensive harm that you're inflicting and the harm that will be resolved from the original attack. So that's what the proportionality requirement uh, suggests. And of course, there are more complications here. We might think, what um, what are the reasons? How, how do we actually cash out the appropriate fit? That is a very complex question, and there are many factors that affect it. And um, perhaps we'll touch upon them later on in the discussion. But if we put the complexities to the side for a minute and go back to the case of political uh, protest, what the proportionality test requires is that we investigate whether the harm, the specific types of harm that political rioters inflict, um, has an appropriate fit to the harm that they seek to avert through their actions. So if we, again, at the general level, think about what are the categories that exist within these two groups. So we think that the harm that protesters seek to avert, well, of course, it depends on the type of protest. But if we look at the at the George Floyd protests um, that happened a year ago in the US, if we think about the type of harm that they sought to avert, well, this is harm that relates to incident of 
police violence against African Americans. Uh, it re- and it also relates more generally to the conditions of um, political marginalization and economic marginalization of racial minorities in the U.S. So this is a type of harm that the protests were rising against, and we can think about the, the harms that they themselves inflicted in response. Um, so that involved harm to private and public property, as we know, and from police stations to shops and to houses. And it was also involved some harm to persons, including police officers and uh, civilians. So these are the type of harms. And we need to think what is the appropriate fit between those actions and the harm that the protesters sought to avert. Now, one, one last thing to say is that the three conditions, necessity, success, and proportionality, are very much intertwined with each other. So it is the case that when you an, when you analyze the cases of political violence, you have to kind of keep all these three concepts together in your head because the, the question about, for example, whether um, a, a protest can meet a necessity condition is intertwined with the question of is the harm that it inflicts proportionate and there are other types of connections. So we shouldn't think about these conditions as necessarily as separate from each other. We might see them as kind of like three sides of, of a construct that all of them support each other and all of them need to be fulfilled in order for the whole construct to kind of be stable. Hmm. So I'm, gl- I'm glad you mentioned the George Floyd protests. And I think on top of them, there's just been a lot of violent protests or riots over the last 18 months. And a lot I'd say almost all of them are about the clear kind of political import. So we have the kind of George Floyd protests and the large uprising uh, in support of Black Lives Matter last summer, the Capitol Hill riot in January, where protesters stormed the Capitol to try to stop the election from being counted. And then here in the UK, there's kind of the high profile case of the Colston statue being toppled. There is a riot in Bristol uh, protesting the police crime and sentencing bill. And there was also, not sure if it was a riot, but there was definitely a clash between the police and vigil attenders, kind of uh, people mourning the, the murder of Sarah Everard in London too. So how does your analysis help us examine these incidents, do you think? I'll, I'm, I'm going to say something theoretical, kind of general theoretical things first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of uh, comment more specifically on these cases. One of the things that I think we want to ask, and I've touched upon it in my in my responses earlier on, is what are the protesters trying to achieve? As I said earlier, I think that in specific cases of in some cases of of, of uh, domestic political violence of this case, of protest of this case, it is not the, ca- it is not the case that the, that the protesters are acting on nefarious motives, but they're actually acting as on political motives. But we need to dive into specifically what exactly are these uh, political motives, or what are the goals, if we like, of uh, protesters. Now, at a general level, I suggest in my work that we can identify at least three such goals. One goal can be to avert an unjust policy or a series of unjust policies. Um, so, for example, it could be cases of discrimination or the tar- of, of, of certain racial groups that can take uh, various forms from police violence to political marginalization to economic marginalization. But it can be other causes as well. The second cause that, to my mind, applies specifically when we're thinking about oppressed groups is the the goal of, of being heard in the public sphere. So I think it's often the case that especially oppressed and marginalized groups just 
are not given enough attention, uh, sometimes hardly any attention, in the public debate. By public debate, I mean the political, in the main political debates, for example, in parliamentary debates, but it can also be in the in kind of the general mainstream media and culture outlets. So from the news reports to the things we watch on TV to that the, to things that that people uh, talk about and care about. So a second goal that you often hear uh, violent protesters mention in interviews is that they simply want to be to be part of the conversation, and they feel that in a democratic society, all citizens should have a part in the conversation, but because of patterns of oppression and, and because of the way that the, the discourse has been, the political discourse has been shaped by patterns of uh, oppression and by, and by biases, um, they don't get their equal share of participation. So one protester says, we burn cars because it's the only way to make ourselves heard. And, and you can see that you can then interpret it as a claim that says, well, I have a right as a democratic citizen to be heard by the public sphere. And if the only way to make myself heard is, is to burn cars, then I will do that. So we can see it as a kind of an attempt to, be, to kind of exercise your democratic rights, rights of participation. And the third goal that I think we ought to take into account is more symbolic. And we often hear by, from protesters that they resort to violence because they are angry, uh, because they are outraged by what they're seeing. What it's, it's often the case that, um, that violent protest erupts in response to a specific case, for example, of police brutality, but of course against the background of many such cases. That's kind of like the thing that, um, the, the last straw, if you like. Um, so they are outraged by these incidents. They are angry. And they are also defiant. They are refusing publicly, refusing to accept the authority of the state. So they are kind of like pushing back against the state by pushing back against the police, by spraying graffiti, by toppling down statues, by burning police cars. They are defying the claim that the state has authority over them. Now, in my view, in some cases at least, these goals can count as self-defensive goals. And by these means, all of these goals can count as goals that seek to defend important and valuable rights and interests of the protesters or their communities. So the first goal, that of changing public policy, I assume that that goal is meant to counteract an unjustified attacks on people's rights, whether it's attacks, rights to security, whether it, it's, it's rights to uh, economic prosperity, whether it's a right to, um, to equal status in the state, you can, you know, we can unpack it. But I, I believe that that idea of, of seeking to avert that, uh, this kind of unjust state policy is uh, self-defensive. I also think the same about democratic participation. So many people believe that democratic participation is a fundamental right that people have. And in a way, in asserting that right, you can see it as a way to reject that unjustified denial that um, some protesters, some citizens have even in, in prosperous democratic societies. And I think we can even say the same about anger and defiance, um, these, these kind of more symbolic and expressive goals. The idea here is that sometimes when people are subject to serious oppression and uh, we know that this kind of serious oppression can have very, very dangerous psychological effects on the, those who are subjected to it. 
And there's a lot of literature that talks about the the kind of insidious uh, self-fulfilling prophecies, if you like, where people, uh, for example, where young people who are told, who are, are given the message that because of their gender or because of their of their of their racial group um, or because of their economic situation in life, they are unlikely to to succeed. Then this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, where they start to internalize and believe these things themselves, or find it much and much more difficult to to believe and, and to kind of to maintain their own sense of self-value. Now, as feminist theorists have told us for a long time, responses of anger and defiance can serve as a counter to these kind of damaging and dangerous psychological impact. So when a person allows themselves to be angry and a person allows themselves to define oppressive authority, they also counter that insidious message that they are worthless or that they are not worth fighting for. So again, you can see that as a form of self-defensive goal. Now, if we take this, theoret- this general theoretic framework, when we look at real-world cases, I think the, real, the first question we need to ask is, do we think that in those cases, there were indeed this kind of just causes, if you like, or is it indeed the case where the protesters are engaged in protests because um, they are they are trying to protect uh, important interests that they are correct to observe are being threatened by their state? So you mentioned a lot of examples, and I'm 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 not sure that we have time to go through all of them. But if we look at uh, kind of first of all at at, at the George Floyd protests then I think what everything I've said so far suggests that um, at the first stage, when we're thinking, was there a just cause? To my mind, there is a good case to make that there was a just cause. It doesn't yet mean that the violence was justified, but we can think that there is at least, it crosses a first threshold. There was some kind of a, a just cause here for the protesters. On the other hand, if you look at the Capitol Hill riots uh, that happened in the beginning of 2021, I think it's hard to see how uh, these protests have, have crossed that, that threshold. So as we all know, these protests were as a response of a group of supporters of the outgoing president, uh, Donald Trump, who came to believe that the election results were, were rigged and they um, stormed the Capitol Hill in order to force the legislators to kind of undo the popular vote decision and I don't know, call for next elections or whatever. I don't know what exactly they was the, was the end game there. However, I, I certainly believe that the many, at least many of the protesters that stormed Capitol Hill genuinely believe, were genuinely convinced that the elections were rigged. However, their beliefs were not reasonable. All evidence that was, uh, all, all, all evidence, all investigations that were done clearly suggested that there was uh, no rigging to the elections. And there was no evidence to suggest, there was no really real evidence, hard evidence to suggest anything to the contrary. Right? So these people, their own fault or not to their own fault, we can, we can, dis- we can disagree on that. But they were uh, acting on unreasonable beliefs that uh, the elections were rigged and therefore there was really no just cause to begin with. The other two cases you mentioned, again, we need to, to look in them, into them more closely. So we need to think about what does the toppling down of statues mean? What is the uh, cause behind it? And I, I haven't, myself, I haven't done that, that analysis in detail, but I, I can certainly see an argument to suggest that these statues have a, a deeper meaning um, that 
contributes to enduring injustices in societies and that perhaps for that reason the protests against them are justified. And about the Bristol protest, again, I, I, I don't want to say too much because I, I confess that I, I have not yet done the proper research on that, but what I'm suggesting is that that's the analytical tools we can use. Finally, what I'll say is once we've crossed that threshold, then we need to apply the three tests that we mentioned, success, necessity, and proportionality, and we need to do a careful analysis of the, of, of the violence. And it is, a, it is a careful analysis that needs to be done. And I think that it's not an answer that we can give in you know, two sentences. And indeed, I'm now writing a book that tries to kind of give a more detailed response that looks at the specific types of violence that were used in these protests, in the George Floyd protests, and, and tries to kind of assess their effectiveness, their necessity, and their proportionality. So... What I'm proposing at this stage is less to give a concrete judgment about about real-world cases. I'm not quite there yet. But what I am inviting um, people to think about and um, the type of work that I think we ought to do is precisely to engage in the exercise of applying the theoretical tools that are given to us by the just war theory to these specific cases. And of course, that is something that is complex and requires careful reflection. So your broader research focuses on collective responsibility. So is there a link between that topic and this interest in riots? Do you see the riot as a group? And if so, what kind of a group is a riot? Yes, there is a link. Uh, there are two links, actually, two important links. And this is um, these reflections are, are fairly recent reflections, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm still working on them. But these are the type of, of important connections that I see. First of all, I think that from the side of the protesters, the the type of um, violence engaged in and the type of group that they are is one that um, sits between just war theory and ethics of self-defense. And that's why I think it's so fascinating. And that's why I think more work needs to be done about it. So on the one hand, uh, protesters... Uh, that engage in in, in violent protests are not they are not organized groups like states, right? There's no command structures. There's no um, kind of uh, clear collective goals that all have uh, decided upon and you know, voted on. There's no uh, authority structures. Suppose you know the military decides that we uh, if a unit a military unit assi- decides to attack this hill, then we know who is the person who decides it. Is the commander of the unit that has the authority to decide what the group wants to do, and also the commander has a way of enforcing to make sure that all the soldiers in the unit are actually acting towards that 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 specific goal. Uh, we don't have that in protests, in crowds, and in groups like protesters. On the other hand, they are not individuals that are just acting independently of each other, right? So it's not like there's just one attacker or one person kind of decides to, I don't know, throw throw rocks or spray graffiti on a shop. They are acting in a group and they are influenced by each other's actors. So what we have here is a case of a joint action or shared action. And there are interesting theories about joint action or shared action. What does it mean for people to act together? And um, what are, and then we can follow from that from the conceptual analysis. What are the normative implications of act of acting together? What are the in, the implications of what what we are allowed to do together and what we are not allowed to do together? So that literature on collective action can really affect uh, our analysis of violent protesters. And I think on the other hand as well, we can ask questions of collective responsibility. So if we think like I do 
that what protesters are revolting against are scenarios of state injustice, for example, unjust policies and regulations that relate to a police conduct against uh, racial minorities, then we might wonder who, are, who is responsible for uh, these injustices and those and who might have actually uh, the duties to incur some of the harms that happen when people um, try to defend themselves against these injustices. And here my other work, my earlier work on citizens' responsibility for their state and injustice comes to play. Because I do believe that as members of our state and certainly as citizens of democratic state, we share responsibility for what our state does in our name in view of our participation in the state and support of it. I think drawing on that, we kind of connecting the dot, I do think that as citizens, especially as affluent citizens, we may actually be liable to some of the harms that protesters inflict or press protesters inflict in the course of a riot. So going back to the start of our conversation, when I said that my knee-jerk reaction when I was living close to Haringey in, in London was what's going on here and how, you know, this is scary and, 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 and why, you know, how can, what have I done to deserve this? Well, um, maybe as a citizen of the UK and as someone who was benefited from unjust policies of, of, of the UK state, uh, wittingly or unwittingly, unwittingly in my case, um, then I am, I, I should be expected to bear some of this harm and I shouldn't be so outraged when the harm comes to me. Now, of course, we need to be more careful here and to think what level of harm one is liable to and who, who should share their costs. But I do think that at the general level, I'm drawn to the idea that as citizens, if what is required in order to change states' policies is to resort to sub-violent protest, then we as citizens have some responsibility to incur the costs of that harm. When I was first working on this topic, I... I tried a similar approach to what you did in your paper, obviously not as well. And part of it, I got like this pushback. I presented the, the first draft. I would take the just war criteria and apply it to the riot. Mine was a bit rote, I'll admit. But I got what I got pushback from is that a war is pre-planned and a riot isn't. So there's like this question of intentionality, which is one of the kind of traditional just war criteria. And the second is the idea of, of lack of authority, right? So a war has a clear, like, there's like just authority that only the head of state can declare a war, not like you and I can't just declare war on some country, right? It's got to be a, a proper person with constitutional power to do so. And so a riot obviously doesn't do that. The, the crowd just shows up and, and no one declares a riot, right? It just happens. So... Obviously, you disagree with that critique, but how would you respond to those objections about the differences between war and riot? I think there are important objections, and I think there are important distinctions. I don't think that the conclusion that follows from that is that for that reason, the criteria of self-defense, proportionality, necessity, and effectiveness do not apply to the case of riots. I think what they suggest is that the traditional uh, engagement in just war theory, which which has been largely focused on combatants fighting uh, wars, having a fairly high level of ability to make assessments on the ground about about you know what they can do, what will the harm be, and that the inflict will be, and also fairly tight levels of control from the units about what they will do. 
Um, I think that 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 framework does not um, is 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 a very narrow one, and in a way misses out a lot of cases in reality where people engage in collective violence and don't have these tight authority structures. Now it's. It's not just about riots. So, you know, we have uh, militaries, tight militaries on the one hand, and we have protesters perhaps on the other, but there's also groups in the middle, right? So we can think about groups that have a less tight authority structures and command structures than, than traditional militaries. It could be paramilitary groups. It could be militias. It could be, you know, all kinds of things in the middle. And I think there are fascinating questions to ask what happens when the kind of the agency in the group or the structure of the group starts uh, loosening up. What are the normative implications that follow for individuals who are acting in a group and who are who the outcomes of what they do is affected by the fact they're acting as a group. They can do more things, they can inflict more harm, uh, and they can also achieve more. So they are acting in a group and, and they can do more things how does that affect the permissibility of their actions? And I think that this is currently a lacuna in in, in just in kind of ethics of self-defense, just war theory. We either have focus on individual agents, kind of one-on-one cases, mm. or we have focus on structured groups. We have much less thinking about unstructured groups. However, we do have quite rich literature on the normative implications of acting together in unstructured groups in other contexts. And part of what I want to do in the new book is to kind of take that literature on that that thinks about acting together Mm -hmm. in unstructured groups and and apply it to the case of violence, a violent protest, and try to draw practical action-guiding conclusions from it. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Avia, and good luck with the book project. I'm sure we'll, we're all looking forward to seeing it when it comes out. Thank you. It's, it's, it's great to talk about it. It's, it's a nice feeling. The Just Riot Theory podcast is part of my British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship project called Just and Unjust Riots, a normative assessment of militant protest. It is produced by Thea Hartman at the Public Engagement with Research Unit at the University of Southampton. Funding for the podcast series was provided by the British Academy. 